0: Well, we are so blessed this morning, aren't we, to be here to sing together. Thank you, uh, all those who were helping us sing up on the stage. What a blessing it is to have servants who have those kinds of abilities. Much better than me up here trying to lead you uh, or play piano. That would be interesting. Today, I wanted to bring a special message to you. And just to update you on last week's message, at least uh, a thousand or more U.S. and Canadian preachers preached on biblical sexual morality last week. It went out, you could say, all around the world. Uh, one report has said that John MacArthur's uh, sermon that he preached on this issue, he's the, the man who called for many of us to preach on that topic. His sermon was banned on YouTube by week's end because it was so offensive to the world. Again, just preaching from the text there, uh, as, as I did here. Also, some things that happened just in our local church here as a result of that message. I got an email this week. that said, thank you for preaching God's truth. I've been a churchgoer all my life, this man says, but this was the first time I witnessed these truths preached in real time and sadly never in person in a church that I've attended. I pray that God's truth will continue to be declared as the trumpets we will hear when Christ returns. Another man was watching this live stream online at his house. He came in on Monday and testified to Frank and I of repentance, of a change of heart, of trusting in Christ for the first time. And so he's joined us today to worship because of that. He heard God's word preached and he was changed. He was born again. This is all of us as a church working to do the Lord's will, working to do what He's already told us to do in His Word, all serving one another. And as the Word goes out from this pulpit, it goes to all of you and out to all the world. So let's continue in doing that together. Let's continue in focusing on what matters in the church, the gospel, Christ, edification, building one another up in the faith. Well, today... I want to bring a message on that very subject. I want to bring to you a message entitled, Life and Doctrine, the Marks of a Biblical Church Leader. Yesterday, we met in this room for our men's leadership training. We had about 20 guys show up. They ate 35 breakfast tacos. That was just to get them going. Lots of coffee, at least two pots of coffee. But the most important thing is we started looking at, what does a biblical leader look like? What's the life, the heart life, the inner life of a biblical leader? And we talked as well about some doctrinal issues, because that really is what it comes down to. When you're looking at a leader, you're looking for someone who has the right life, according to Scripture, and the right doctrine. So we had a great time of just starting to examine what that looks like, and I wanted to bring a special message for our church on that subject. We need to know how to evaluate leadership properly. How do you even know what kind of church to join in the first place? What do those leaders look like according to Scripture? How should we think about a church leader when we hear something negative said about him? How do we even know if we're in a biblical church? Well, the Bible's clear on these issues. We can look to Scripture and we can see what it says and compare what we hear and see to what the Bible teaches us. This is important because the Bible tells us exactly the true marks of a church. Today, I just want to focus on one of those, which is biblical leadership. But there's three others as well. The Reformers taught, and it's in Scripture, of course, that the church ought to preach the word. When you're looking for a church, that's one of the most important things to look for. A mark of a true church is that it faithfully preaches the word of God. Secondly, that it administers the ordinances, sometimes called sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. You don't want to join a church and never ever see a baptism when somebody gets saved and never have the Lord's Supper. Thirdly, the church needs to exercise biblical church discipline according to Matthew 18. So Matthew 18 guides us through the steps of church discipline. And when there is a sin and when it is inside the church, it needs to be dealt with scripturally. And then fourthly, qualified biblical leadership. Number one, the word needs to go out Number two, the ordinances need to be present. Three, there ought to be church discipline. And then fourthly, which is our topic today, there should be qualified biblical leadership. And that's really assumed in the other three, because how can you have faithful preaching? How can you have proper uh, administration of the ordinances? How can you have church discipline without biblical leadership? And really, I've already said, we can summarize the marks of a biblical church leader with two words. Life. And doctrine, life and doctrine. So that's our study today. We're going to look at the scriptures, and we're going to see what the Bible has to teach on those subjects. When I say life, when the Bible describes a person's life, it ought to be a godly life. That kind of life that a biblical leader should have—a godly life, a life growing in Christ's likeness, a life that's an example to follow. Not a perfect life. Jesus was the only perfect person who's ever lived. That's not what the Bible says about leaders. It says they are living a godly life, and they are growing to be more and more like Christ, and they are an example to follow. And when I say doctrine, I'm talking about the teaching of Scripture. They understand biblical sound doctrine, and they can teach it. Not heretical teaching, but truth from Scripture that builds up. So that's just a basic definition of life and doctrine. We're going to see in the Bible uh, how the scriptures expand upon that. I just want you to know life and doctrine is what you look at. When you join a church, when you visit a church, you see, do they preach the word? Are they serving the Lord's Supper and baptism? If there is sin, do they deal with it biblically? And are these leaders living out what they preach and believing the right things? So let me give you three examples in the Bible of the importance of a leader's life and doctrine. Three examples. First of all, the life and doctrine of an Old Testament prophet. This is very important to the people of Israel as they are hearing from God through these prophets in the Old Testament. They need to know how do they evaluate a man whenever he does prophesy. When he brings the word of God to us, what do we look at? How do we evaluate it? If we were in... The nation of Israel at that time. The prophet of God speaks the words of God. They're supposed to tell people exactly the words that God gave them. And that person should be listened to if they're speaking God's word. In fact, many of our Old Testament books are written by prophets. They spoke the word of God and they wrote it down. So generations later could look at that and understand it. So how do we know if a person is a true prophet? Well, one of the things is that they predicted accurately 100% of the time what would happen when they said it would happen. That doesn't transfer over into the New Testament leadership, but I wanted to at least mention that. The other two qualifications of a prophet, though, really comes down to life and doctrine. The way you know if a prophet is a true prophet of God is by looking at his life and his doctrine. Let's start in Jeremiah chapter 23. And we want to see here, What God is saying through his prophet Jeremiah about other prophets. By the time of Jeremiah, you have many, many prophets. You have the school of prophets. And you have some saying things that don't seem to match up with what Jeremiah is teaching, what Jeremiah is preaching. And he is preaching doom and gloom and judgment upon Jerusalem. But there are other prophets who are saying, We're going to be blessed. God is going to be good to us. Don't listen to Jeremiah. So the question becomes, who is the right and true prophet? Well, Jeremiah says, here's the test. Here's how you know in Jeremiah 23, verse 14. You examine their moral integrity. You examine their life. Also among the prophets there, I have seen a horrible thing. The committing of adultery and walking in falsehood. And they strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me, God says, like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. He's saying, look, you know who a true prophet is by looking at their life. How are they living? How are they walking? How is their life compared to the teaching of Scripture? These prophets were walking in adultery. They were living a life of falsehood. They were actually helping wicked people gain and gain in their wickedness. They're like Sodom and Gomorrah. Jump down to verse 16. And he says, because of this, God told his people, thus says Yahweh of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. How do you know who you should follow? How do you know who you should listen to? What kind of Christian books should you read? Well, if they live an immoral life already gone from your reading list, unless you're doing it apologetically trying to help somebody see where this person has gone wrong but you don't follow them as an example you don't listen to their teaching it's already suspect because it's obvious they're living a sinful life Jesus picks this up in the New Testament he says in Matthew 7:15 beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing they seem to be having your interest in mind but inwardly they're ravenous wolves Well, how do you know then, Jesus, if they look like sheep, but they're actually wolves? How do you know? And Jesus says in verse 20 of Matthew 7, so then you will know them by their fruits. You'll know them because you look at them and observe and you're with them and you see their life doesn't match what they're saying. Their life doesn't match scripture, more importantly. You'll know them by their fruits. So Scripture is clear. When a person claims to be a prophet, yet he lives immorally, this person is a false prophet. Someone who lives an ungodly life should not be listened to. They should not be trusted with the things of Scripture. They're no longer qualified to lead God's people from a place of spiritual authority. So that's the life of the prophet in the Old Testament. There's another test now. We need to look at doctrine. We need to look at what the Bible says about an Old Testament prophet, even if they're... Prediction came true. What about if their doctrine is wrong? Go with me to Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13, Moses is writing to the Israelites. Before they come into the land, he wants them to know, who are they going to listen to after him? Who are they going to listen to after Moses dies? So in Deuteronomy 13, he gives them a test. We saw in Jeremiah the test of a person's life. Now let's look in Deuteronomy 13, that doctrine. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign of that wonder comes true. So even if the thing comes true, which they say is going to happen, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord, this is the the Hebrew word Yahweh, Your God is testing you to find out if you love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. That's actually a test. God let that thing happen they said was going to happen, but they're teaching false doctrine. They're saying, go after another God. That's a test from the true God to see if you're truly following him. Verse 4, you shall follow Yahweh, your God, and fear him. You shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. But the prophet or the dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which Yahweh your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Even if the guy can do wonders. Even if the the prophet could say something that actually happened, it doesn't matter if they teach contrary to the commandments of God. So what's the rule? The Bible is the rule that we compare everything to. Bible. The rule is what the Bible says. Their life has to match that. Their doctrine has to match the scriptures. In 2 Peter, Peter picks this up again in the New Testament. And he says, False prophets also arose among the people. 2 Peter 2.1 Just as there will also be false teachers among you. So he said that in the Old Testament there were false prophets. They arose among the people. Watch out because in the church there are going to be false teachers among you. How do you spot them? He says they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Even denying the master who brought them. Bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. So both in that verse, there's both life and doctrine that he's telling us to look at. He said they have destructive heresies. Their teaching leads to hell. Their teaching leads to someone not being saved, but the opposite. That's why it is called a heresy. Also, though, he says their lifestyle is all about sensuality. And they pervert the way of truth. They malign it. They cause problems problems. With their false teaching. So there's an example in the Old Testament. God said it's very clear. You look at the prophet, you look at their life, and you look at their doctrine. Now we move secondly to the New Testament, and we look at the life and doctrine of a pastor elder. A pastor elder. Not only were the Old Testament prophets required to live a godly life and teach the truth, but the pastor, the elder, the overseer is said in Scripture to have to follow. The commandments of God live out a godly life and teach right doctrine. Now, his life is even more open than the prophet. The prophet might live out in the wilderness. The prophet you might only see when he's preaching. But the pastor, the elder, lives among us. He is with us. He is one of the sheep. We see his life. And so in the New Testament, God clearly calls men to lead the church in those offices. He calls them overseers, pastors, shepherds, elders. And he lays out the requirements. Why? So that we can all look at men in the church and see who is qualified, who is gifted. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4. And we're going to see the same thing that we saw with the prophets. We've got to consider the life and the doctrine of a man. He can't even be an elder in the church unless his life and doctrine match up to Scripture. Again, not perfection. That's not what God said. But he does give a clear mark, a clear line that we need to consider. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's pick up in verse 15. He says, Paul's writing to Timothy. The church in Ephesus is a mess. They have bad leadership. They need help. Paul loves the church in Ephesus. He loves the church there. He wants to help them understand what the church should be like according to Scripture. And that starts with the leaders. And so he tells Timothy, who's been sent there to correct all this. Timothy, he says in 1 Timothy 4.15, Take pains with these things. What things? The things that Paul has taught him. All the things in the letter of 1 Timothy, plus all the things that he had already been taught by Paul. Take pains with them. Work hard at understanding and teaching these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. You need to be growing yourself, Timothy, and you need to be an example. Now he opens this up in verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Very close attention to your own self, your own life, and your teaching, your doctrine. And then he says why this is important. Persevere in these things, for as you do, this will ensure salvation, both for yourself and for those who hear you. Why is it so important? Because people are listening. People are following. And the way that the leader goes is the way that the congregation, the members, will go as well. Yes, God is the one who... Does all the work of salvation. But much of that is done through people who take the gospel out. Who take the word. And they teach it. And they live a godly life. And he says this will ensure salvation for yourself. And for those who hear. God uses people. He uses people to save others. To edify others. To sanctify others through the word. It's very important. He says life and doctrine Timothy. Work on it. Now go back to verse 12. He opens up a bit of what the life should look like here. Let no one look down on you for your youthfulness. Timothy's a young man, probably about 30. Very young compared to some of the others in the church. Maybe the other elders who are causing some problems in Ephesus. And Paul says, don't let them look down on you. Here's what you should focus on, though. Not your age, but your spiritual maturity, your life. He says, in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself yourself. As an example of those who believe. Be an example. Live out what the scripture calls us to live out. As a godly man. As a godly leader in the church. Don't worry about your age. It's not about age. It's about spiritual maturity. Of course we don't you know, make 8 year olds elders in the church. At some point you do have to think about age. But it's more about spiritual maturity. What this person is in their own life and what they have been taught so they can teach others. Life and doctrine. We're back to that in the New Testament as well. What's well, no wonder that for centuries, often pastors have been taught the life of a minister is the life of his ministry. The life of a minister, how he lives, is the life of his ministry. He has no ministry if his life is a sinful wreck. He has no ministry if he starts out Well, but then falls later, he has no ministry because it's all about his life and being godly. Paul told the governor, Felix, in Acts 24, he's preaching. He's got an opportunity. Yeah, he's been arrested, but the governor is there. The Roman governor is listening to him. And he said, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. He says, I seek to live a godly life. No one can take hold of me on some major sin, he says, and prove that I've done that because that would disqualify me. The leader has to be above reproach. This is why Charles Spurgeon often said to his students, this is recorded in his book, Lectures to My Students, we've all heard the story of a man who preached so well and lived so badly That when he was in the pulpit, everybody said he ought never to come out again. And when he was out of the pulpit, they all declared he never ought to enter it again. You have to match what you preach with how you live. Those two things have to go together. If they're separate, well, that can be a Christian who's struggling with sin. But that's not a leader in the church. And we're not talking about sins of the heart here. When the Bible says live a godly life, we are talking about actions that are taken that are sin. Everybody battles sins of the heart. It's when they get out. It's when they're not doing battle here in the heart. And they get out and affect your life. That's what he's talking about here. My conscience is clear. Paul's not saying he never struggled with sins of the heart. He is battling those. But he says nobody can claim that I have sinned in some major way against them. Well, he goes on. He talks about Timothy Watch yourself. But he also says, pay attention to your teaching. Teaching. The Greek word is didaskalia. Didaskalia means biblical teaching. Instruction from scriptures. Or we'll just say doctrine. Because it's translated sometimes in scripture as doctrine. Speaking of church leaders in Hebrews 13, 7. The command there is that members of the church ought to remember those who led you. Who speak the word of God to you. That's doctrine. Why should church members respect their leaders? The writer of Hebrews 13 says, it's because the word that is spoken to you, doctrine, and he says, consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. That's their life. The word that goes out, their teaching, their doctrine, is it according to scripture? Then you should respect them, he says. And if it's according to scripture, how they live out their life, then follow them, imitate their faith. You see, you don't follow a leader because he's the most awesome-looking guy in the world. He can speak so well. Now, you follow a biblical leader because he preaches and teaches truth and he lives it out. That's how you follow a leader. Not because of his wealth. Not because of his fame. There are many faithful men today who serve in little churches. will never hear the name of their whole life. 40, 50, 60, 70 years. They're not famous, but they are the most faithful people you could ever meet. And the kind of men that you would want to follow if you were in their church and you would want to learn from them. Let's talk more about doctrine in Acts 20, 28. Go there with me because Paul's on his way to Rome. He finally gets to go to Rome and he's going to stop off. He's got some freedom, so he's able to meet with the elders in Ephesus. He's not able to go to Ephesus, but he has them come to meet him. And a little coastal town where the ship stops. And in Acts 20, verse 28, he tells them, be on guard. Be on guard for yourselves. Again, what is that? Yourself is your life. Watch your life. Be on guard with how you live. And for all the flock. Again, that comes back to doctrine. Watch your life, yourself, and watch the flock. Make sure you're building them up, teaching them, strengthening them, helping them. To grow in the faith. Why? So they can spot error. Because look, he says, among which the Holy Spirit has made you. So elders are appointed by the Holy Spirit. They're not appointed simply by man, but by the Holy Spirit first. And he says, the Holy Spirit's made you overseers. He's made you a shepherd of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Okay, why? Watch yourself and your doctrine. So you can be a leader, number one. But also he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves, these are false teachers, immediately when Paul leaves, they're going to come in. And they have been in the church for centuries since then. They will come among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. There's always going to be false teachers in our world. There's always going to be people who write books, who get on TV, who come into churches and teach some heretical doctrine. And he says, you've got to watch carefully your own self because you don't want to be one of those elders. You don't want to be the guy that goes rogue and teaches false teaching. Be on guard. Every leader has to guard his own heart. It's not as if the leaders, just because you follow them, it's not as if they're in some separate category where they're now free from all sin, free from all temptation. Every leader has to examine himself, grow in godliness, and a plurality of elders is designed that way so that we help one another, so that we guard one another, so that we encourage one another for godliness. Accountability is not just looking around the corner for every sin someone might be committing. It's helping them grow in godliness. Well, let's go back to 1 Timothy because Paul lays out what this life should look like. This is what we went through or started to with the men yesterday. We went into much more detail than I can go this morning, but I just want to read the list. What is the life of a godly man supposed to look like? Is it the way it was, we think, in the 1800s or the 1950s or today? No, it's what Scripture says. A godly man should look like 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Because Paul tells us exactly the, the characteristics of a godly man, the qualities, the qualifications. Here he says, 1 Timothy 3, one: It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. That's an elder. That's a fine work. That's a good thing. You know, men should be careful. They should check their pride when they do this. But it's not wrong to aspire to the office of an elder. An overseer then must be above reproach. That's the overarching Qualification above reproach, meaning they can't be pinned down on some sin they've committed that is clear in scripture that's a disqualifying sin. You can't go and find some record uh, in the police department of how they have sinned since they became a Christian that would bring reproach upon them. You can't say that they've cheated you out of a million dollars and prove it. Because that man should not be qualified. He is not qualified for ministry. And so on. That's the overarching qualification. After that, now he begins to explain what is it. What is above reproach? The husband of one wife. He's focused on his wife. He's not looking at other women. He's not chasing other women. He's not caught in adultery. He's not caught in immorality. He is focused on his wife. And he, he loves her. And you see that in him. He's temperate. He's prudent, respectable. This means in his actions, you know he doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't go after addictions. He doesn't go after things that are sinful in the world. He's hospitable. He's able to teach. Now there's the doctrine, isn't it? Able to teach. Able to teach what? To teach scripture. That's doctrine. Everything else in this list, though, is life. He focuses a lot more on a person's life than just the ability to teach. That is a gifting that God does give men who do teach and preach. The rest of this, though, is an example for every man in the church, and really every woman in the church. If you generalize the man of one wife, of course, to being also a godly wife to your husband, you can see how these describe qualities of a godly Christian. Well, he continues here, he says, Hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine. This is a person who's not a drunkard. Or pugnacious, a person who gets into fights and hurts others. But he should be gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Again, these are heart issues that come out in a person's life if they're not checking their heart, if they're not growing in godliness. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Talking here about spanking the children, making sure they're not completely out of control. Of course, sometimes children are going to sin, right? No perfect child is born into this world. If you have one, let me know. I'd like to witness that perfect child. I've not met one yet, and none of us were when we were children, even if we were saved at a young age. He's saying, does the man discipline his children? And when he tells them to obey, do they obey? In general, do they obey? But if a man does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he take care of the church of God? Think about that for a second. What does it mean to manage your own household well? Well, in the church, are there people who sin in the church? Yeah, we can all hopefully agree on that, right? We're not perfect, and we're sinners. Well, in the house, there are people who sin. So it's not about general human sin that we all still carry even after we're saved. This is about managing well. The man manages his household well. Expand that now to the whole church. Paul continues, and not a new convert. This can't be a new believer. Because they'll get conceited if suddenly they become a leader in the church and they will fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. The devil would love to have a new convert become a leader that quick because he would take that man and puff him up and use him to destroy. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach on the snare of the devil. Now I go to Titus 1. Paul gives another list, very similar. Almost all of them are the same as he adds a couple here at the end. But I want you to again look for the life and the doctrine of the man. A godly leader has a godly life and he has biblical doctrine. Titus chapter 1 starting in verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete so that you would set in order what remains. And here's Titus's job there. Appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Every city where there's a church that's been planted, go through there. These are brand new churches. They've only been there a few months. And find some men who are qualified to lead. He must be a man above reproach. We've seen that one. The husband of one wife. Having children who believe, some translations say it really should be translated, who are faithful, who are faithful to their parents, are not accused, he says, of dissipation or rebellion. Dissipation is drunkenness. So he's talking about older children. These children are not rebellious. These teenagers are not out And getting drunk and getting put in jail and doing drugs. That man has lost control of his house. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Not self-willed. Not quick-tempered. Not addicted to wine. Not pugnacious. Not fond of sordid gain. Hospitable. Loving what is good. Sensible. Just. Devout. Self-controlled. And that's all the life. That's the life of the leader. Now he's getting to the doctrine in verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word. Which is in accordance with the teaching. So that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine. There it is. Didaskalia. The same as what we saw back in 1 Timothy 4.16. didascalia. He's able to exhort in the truth of scripture. And refute those who contradict. That's why doctrine is important. Not just to build up the faithful. But also to protect the church against those who come in from the outside. And try to distort the truth. He needs to be able to refute them. And he needs to be able to do that through teaching. Does he have the ability to communicate the word of God? In public and in private. A man doesn't have to be an eloquent preacher. He doesn't have to be Charles Spurgeon or Steve Lawson or John MacArthur to be an elder. There would be very few elders ever in the church. It's not what it's saying. He's just able to open up the word and teach someone. Maybe in one-on-one or in a group setting, a Bible study, maybe a sermon. Does he have a working knowledge of Scripture? Have you ever been in a church where the people teaching don't seem to understand the Bible? They don't seem to understand the Word? And there's all kinds of ungodly living in the church? The reason is, is because the leaders themselves aren't teaching. They're not building up. They're not able to. Maybe they're not gifted. Maybe it's not their fault. They just don't need to be in that position. Teaching the word rightly in the church is so important. What do we have in the church if we don't have the Bible being opened up? That's why he says in 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. It's so important that the doctrine be right and be taught that they are worthy of double honor. And he goes on to basically give two illustrations that deal with payment. And he's saying, it's okay, it's good to pay somebody who spends all their time working on preaching and teaching. Otherwise, if they're spending all their time there, how are they going to take care of their family? You need to help them. Now, Paul's not saying, look for a leader who's entertaining. Look for a leader who looks wonderful. A man pleaser. The most successful man in business. Look for an elder who's the most outgoing guy in the church. What do the qualifications say? His life and his doctrine. That's where you look. That's where you look. We assess a leader based on those things. Life and doctrine. The men of God who lead the church must teach the scriptures. They must live them out. And it's what they say and what you see. You, each member. When we have a new elder here or a new deacon, what do we do? We've tested them. We've trained them. And then we bring them before the congregation. We put their testimony out there so you can read it. They fill out an application with some questions that you can see. Then there's two weeks so you can talk to the current elders. And then we poll the congregation. Why would we do that? Not because we're congregational and church government. No, we're elder governed. We do that to make sure that we've covered everything about life and doctrine. Because we want to hear from you. And you know these people. You know your leaders and your potential leaders. You've lived with them and among them and seen them and been in their homes. And you know what they do and how they teach. Speaking about the idea of an elder's life and doctrine, the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, The pastor is a shepherd, not a pet lamb. He must be alert to the danger of trying to be nice and popular and chatty. The minister is to be always and everywhere the man of God. And not merely when he's in the chapel or taking a service. It is our duty to remember our calling. The pastor's chief object should be to please God rather than to please men. The pastor's main job is to please God. Your main job as a Christian, if we call it a job, is to please God first. As a Christian, will there be people that are unhappy with you because you're a Christian? Will they not like some of the things you do at work? Some of the things you say? Well, it is the same with leaders in the church our main job is to please the Lord well thirdly let's now look at this in Paul's life in second Corinthians the life and doctrine of an apostle now Paul went through a lot of hardships Paul went through a lot of hardships and we want to look at how he defended himself or we could even say didn't defend himself through these hardships let's go to second Corinthians and I want to give you a quick Bible study Of the things that were said about Paul and how he settles the issue. How he deals with the things said about him. Because it's going to come back, you know, to life and doctrine. He's going to say, look at my life. Look at my doctrine. 2 Corinthians. This is the jet tour through 2 Corinthians. Things that the false teachers were saying about Paul. Now, Corinth had its problems. You read that in 1 Corinthians. You see that in 2 Corinthians. The problem is that back then and even today, false teachers are roaming around and they're teaching various heresies. And one of the things they do is they accuse true teachers. And so with Paul, he's gone to Corinth. He planted the church. He's helped them get rolling. He's written letters to them. But still, these false teachers circling around. They call themselves true apostles. They say Paul is not a true apostle. And so they really stir up the Corinthians Paul's not very happy about this. He writes 2 Corinthians to help the members of that church understand. So verse uh, chapter 1, verse 17, they say that he's fickle, that he's fickle. He says, therefore, was I not vacillating when I intended to do this? Was I? He wanted to come to them. He was prevented. He wasn't able to. Am I vacillating? That was a charge against him. Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? So that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. They're accusing him of changing his mind. You know, this guy changes his mind all the time. He says he's going to come, then he doesn't. Then he says he's going to come, then he doesn't. What's up with this guy? He's very fickle. Now go to chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. They seem to indicate that he's lying about his ministry. That he's lying about the success of his ministry. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you and from you? So the false apostles needed another church to commend them to the next church. Hey, this is so-and-so church. We like this guy's preaching. We encourage you to listen to him. And he would show up to Corinth and he would say, here's my letter from another church. Paul says, I don't need that. You, verse 2, you, that church, are our letter. Written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You, he says, have seen me. You have heard my teaching. You have seen me live it out. I don't need someone else to commend me to you. We don't need letters like that, he says. That gets worse in, in 5 13. They tell Paul he's out of his mind. This guy's out of his mind. He says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. So, this beside ourselves and the NASB is, is better translated um, to lose one's mind. He's out of his senses. The Greek word is exist in me. The LSB has it right. It says, for if we are out of our mind, it is for God. They're saying, look, Paul, you're crazy. You're a zealot. You're out of your mind. You're one of these Christian zealots. And he says, fine, if that's the case, then it's all for God. So they accused him of being out of his mind. He'd lost his mind. He'd lost his senses. That was sort of the gossip that they had planted in the minds of the Corinthians here. Now, some charged that he had wronged them corrupted, or maybe defrauded them. Go to chapter 7, verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts, is the idea. He's coming there. They need to clear their hearts about him before he comes. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. The idea here is that he had wronged them in some way, but they have no evidence of that. They had just heard that, and they were thinking wrong about him. And and the idea of corruption here is even a hint of sexual immorality. That Paul had maybe come there and just taken advantage of the women in the congregation. And he says, that didn't happen. But that didn't matter. That was what was going around about him. Also, chapter 10, verse 1. They said he's all talk. He's all talk and no action. 10, 1, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am meek, when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. little sarcasm there. Because the false teachers were saying, you know, this guy Paul, he's very strong in his letters. In person, I mean, he's not all that imposing. This little short guy with messed up eye. He's a, over the hill with his age. I mean, who is this guy? Now also, verse 10 of that same chapter. For they say, so he quotes them, his letters are weighty and strong. His personal appearance is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Don't listen to that guy. You should judge a preacher based on his looks, right? They also charged him with walking according to the flesh, walking in sin, living in sin. Uh, 10-2, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with confidence, with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. There are some people in that church who say, yeah, you know, Paul, he probably walks according to the flesh. He lives a sinful life. Maybe you don't see it. But I'm sure he does when you're not watching. Others said he's not a good speaker. He's not a good preacher. His pulpit presence is lacking. We already saw his speech contemptible. Look at chapter 11, verses 5 and 6 as well. I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. They said, look, this Paul, he's he's not a real apostle. And one of the ways you know it is because he doesn't preach like one. He says in verse six, but even if I am unskilled in speech, he says, "Okay, even if I don't know how to speak as well as some of these eloquent Greek speakers in the world, yet I'm not so in knowledge. I know the truth. I know the truth of God. He says in knowledge, I can communicate that to you. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. He says, look, you've seen me preach. You've seen me teach. I speak truth. I preach doctrine, he says. You've seen that. You have evidence of it. Jump now to 11.7. They're mad at him because he won't take their money. I don't think this happens too often in churches today, but they're mad at him because he won't take their money that they're trying to give him. Chapter 11, verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preach the gospel of God to you without charge. He says, look, did I sin? Are you saying that I sin because I wouldn't take money? They were very mad about this. A traveling preacher and traveling apostle is supposed to be supported by the churches he visits. But because he had received money from other churches, and because he didn't want Corinth to say, we got a handle on you, we've given you a lot of money. He said, I don't want to take money from you guys. And they got mad at that. They were accusing him of sinning by not taking money. They were legalists, in a sense, by saying he had broken some command. But that's not a command in Scripture. He says, I robbed other churches, just kind of sarcastically. I, I took from other churches. I robbed from them by taking wages to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. I didn't burden you because I had money from these other churches in Macedonia that supported me. Look at 12, 13. Again, he comes back to this. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches? except that I myself did not become a burden to you. Forgive me this wrong. He's sarcastic again. Sarcasm can be in the Bible sometimes to prove a point. He says, look, the only thing that is different from your church compared to the rest of them I visit is I wasn't a burden to you. Forgive me if that's wrong. Well, they were mad at him about all these things. They were talking it up. Really, it was the false teachers who were slandering him. They even questioned his loyalty to Jesus Christ. Go to chapter 11, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm more so. He says, it's crazy that I would even have to say this. They are saying they're servants of Christ and they're indicating that I'm not? He says, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things... There's a daily pressure on me for the concern for all the churches. I've suffered for Christ's sake. I have suffered to serve the church. That's something that you need to look at on a godly leader. Are they willing to suffer for the church? Will they take the hit when it comes for the members of the church? All pastors, if they're there long enough, will take hits. And often, the elders take the hit and the members don't even realize it because that's what a servant does. They're supposed to guard The sheep. The shepherd guards the sheep and then he doesn't run over and say, Hey, sheep, let me just tell you what I did for you so you can pat me on the back. No, the shepherd guards the sheep and then he guards the sheep the next day and he just keeps on doing it. And Paul says, I have been through all of these things. I'm a servant of Christ too, aren't I? Well, they also accused him of not having love. Chapter 11, verse 11. He says, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? He said, I'm not going to stop preaching. I'm not going to stop telling people about Christ. Why? Because I do not love you? Because that's what they were saying. Paul doesn't love you. He's just, he's just out there preaching for some other benefit. He doesn't love you. God knows I do, he says. God knows I do. God knows the truth. God knows... That I love you. Let's look at the last one here, chapter 12. He's charged with deceiving. He's charged with deceiving in 12, 16 through 18. So they're mad because he didn't take their money. And now the slander is that he sent Titus to get money from them so he didn't have to do it face to face. At 12, 16, he says, But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, because that was the rumor about him. He was very crafty. I took you by deceit. They were saying, look, Paul's very crafty. He won't ask for money when he comes. But he sent this other guy that works for him, his stooge, Titus. That's deceitful. He says, certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you. Have I? I urged Titus to go and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? So all these accusations, what is Paul going to say? How is he going to defend his ministry? Well, he's laid them all out here. He's talked about them in 2 Corinthians. He does often just say that's wrong, that didn't happen. But overall, how's he going to deal with this? Is he going to defend himself? Is he going to go point by point, writing a whole letter about each issue? Is he going to play whack-a-mole every time a new accusation pops up? Look at 1219. Here's how he starts to handle it. 1219. All this time, you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves. He goes, you've been reading this letter, and you think it's all about me defending ourselves. Actually, it's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. He's saying, I care more about what God thinks than what you think. That's what he's saying. MacArthur Study Bible says that um, Paul wanted the Corinthians to judge him based on their observations of his ministry. He said, Look at me. You see that I love the Lord, that I love God, and that I'm doing this for the Lord's sake. And he makes this very clear in verse 6. Chapter 12, verse 6. Here's how he defends his ministry. He really doesn't. Because he says it's already been done in front of you. You see everything. You know everything about me. You know, he says. Look at verse 6. I do not wish to boast. I will not be foolish. What is he talking about? He's saying, look, I went and had a vision of heaven. And he details that in the first part of chapter 12. I saw heaven... I saw the third heaven, if you count the the sky and space, and the third heaven is where God is. I was there, I had a vision. And later he'll talk about a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to not make him prideful about that vision. But right in between here in verse 6. I could boast about heaven, I could boast about my visions. I could use that as a reason, he says, to make you believe what I say. But I refrain from this. So that no one will credit me with more. And here it comes. More than he sees in me. That's his life. And hears from me. That's his doctrine. What Paul preaches. That's his hearing. You're hearing the preaching. So you can judge it based on scripture. And you see his life. So you can judge it based on what you see. What matters is the life and doctrine of a biblical leader. That's how people are to evaluate it. You want to know if somebody is a leader? You want to know if they're following scripture? What do you know about their life? And what do you hear from them regarding their doctrine? That's how we are to evaluate it. So these are the marks of a biblical leader. Look for those and an elder And this church or in whatever church you end up being a part of someday. They're essential. They must be there. These aren't optional. These aren't preferences. You can't have one without the other. He must believe the scriptures and teach them faithfully. And he must live them out in a godly life. It's just like an older church member once told his pastor. He said, Pastor, as long as you don't teach heresy or we see ungodly lifestyle on you, I will be at this church until I die or God moves me to a different town. And by the way, it's not just for biblical leaders. It's not just for biblical leaders. Your life and doctrine, every church member, has to also do what he's commanded. James 1, verse 22, he calls all Christians, prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers. So everything I've said, except the gift of teaching, applies to every member. You can't just take it in and say, yes, I believe. He says, even the demons believe that. James says that you have to do the word. You have to live it out. Prove yourselves doers of the word. So these are the marks. Yes, we could get into detail about how the preaching should be. We could talk about expository preaching. We could look at prayer life of the pastor. We could look at the family in more detail of an elder. But Paul said it boils down to two categories, life and doctrine. That's what we look for. That's the way Christ has set it up. That's the way Christ has called us to live and believe. So let's pray now that our church would have more godly leaders. Lord, you know our body here. You know our needs. You know, Lord, what men might be gifted by your spirit to lead. You know the future of our church and what men might be brought in that have these giftings that we will see over time. We pray, Lord, that you would raise up more biblical leaders here. We're so thankful to see those guys yesterday and and that you've brought them here providentially and they've joined this training. We pray from that group and, and even other men in our church who want to be trained and want to be led. From those, Lord, you would raise up those who will stand in the gap, who will fight for the truth, who will love you so much that they will stand against everything the devil throws at us, everything the world throws at us, that we will know the truth, proclaim the truth and live it out in our lives. I pray this for every person in this room today, every Christian, every member of our church, that you would help them to be doers of the word. In Jesus' name, amen.